like me, you are really blessed by our missions, 67 um, missions conference and just all the things that went on that weekend. And Brooks was able to bring the word. And it reminded me of my childhood when we would have a guest in town. And uh, for every meal, we'd serve that guest steak. And then the next day, it would be pot roast and then pork chops. It was a really good week when I was growing up. And then the guests would leave. And my dad would make an announcement. And that announcement was, back to beans. Back to beans, Covenant Life Church. I I thought for a second you were afraid to laugh because of how true it was. And I'm trying to set, set this up so my Bible doesn't fall off. But good morning, church. Good morning, guests. I'm Bob Walker, one of CLC's pastors, and we are in Exodus 3 and 4 this morning. We'll go through uh, chapter 4, verse 17. And this passage will teach us that God is with his people, and we, his people, can do all that he asks us to do, and we should do all that he asks us to do. So God calls us, he sends us, he accomplishes his work through us and in us, and he is with us all the way. So, are you ready to do what God says? Are you ready to go? If he speaks to you today, are you ready to do what he tells you to do? Or are you like me oftentimes? Has your life become routine? Is your life just laid out in front of you? You can see it unfolding in an orderly way. And in that, do you take time to ask, am I doing what I should be doing? Maybe another way. How do I know what God wants me to do? Those are hard questions to ask. And your answer makes a difference in how you live your life. So we build plans. We make expectations. But do we think, how does even the existence of God affect my plans? How does God's character affect how I think about my life and how I view myself? I mean, you can just read the opening line of our passage. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of his father-in-law. Moses here is just describing a day in his life, a day in his life that was probably much like the other days in his life. He's doing different things than you and I probably do. But he's probably thinking along the same lines that we think. What kind of questions was he asking himself? What am I going to do today? Will today be a good day? Will it be a bad day? What hardships are there? If he was like me, he'd be thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? Where, where am I going to eat that lunch? How do I get through today? Maybe he's thinking, what will happen when I return from this long trip to the backside of the wilderness, will I please my employer, who's also his father-in-law? Will I successfully tend these sheep and then return them to Jethro to support him and I and our families? You know, these are the same kinds of things that we might think. But on that day, Moses had an encounter with God. But what does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? Here's a man, he's describing events from about 3,500 years ago. He's a shepherd. He lives in Midian. How can what he writes have meaning to me today? How can it speak directly to what I am walking through right now? And so before we, uh, we go through this passage, I do want to just read a reminder from God's word from Romans 15.4. In, in whatever Bible I, I mainly use, I write this verse right in front of the New Te- Old Testament, rather. So it's a New Testament verse. I write it right in the front of the Old Testament to remind me of this. Here's what Paul writes. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that. Always look for those words, so that. Here's the purpose. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
So what was written in earlier times, what was written in Exodus 3 and 4, was written for our instruction for, with a purpose so that we, through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, might have hope. This is written for our hope. It's not just written for the Israelites in Moses' day. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's written for our instruction. This passage is specifically and supernaturally written for us so that we might have hope. This is God's word for you. This is God's word for us. It will teach us. It will reprove us. It will correct us. And it will train us so that we will be fully equipped for every good work. So let's pray that God will do what he, accomplished, what he promised to do through his word. Heavenly Father, you are the Lord. You are the great I am. You are the almighty God. And you are the Lord of us. You are the Lord of, of your word. And so we thank you that you've given us your word. We know that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And we know your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we pray that, uh, that your word would do its work, and we know it will because it is your word, and you are a God of truth. Your word is truth. Your word is sure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this sermon is a call for all believers in Christ, for all of God's people to remember, to remember that God is with you, and therefore you should and you can do God's mission. Remember that God is with you, and therefore you should and you can do God's mission. Before we dive into the passage, let's remind ourselves of the context in which this account occurs. Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. So how did he get there? So let's remember back, Genesis 12, Abraham. God called Abraham. God made covenant promises to Abraham. He was going to give Abraham a land. He was going to make a people of him. He was going to bless the whole world through Abraham. After some time, God gave Abraham a son, Isaac. And that was the son through whom these promises would be accomplished. Isaac had Jacob, who was renamed Israel, Israel had Joseph and other sons. And we remember that, that Joseph was sold into slavery. He was moved to Egypt. Through God's providence, he became a man of great power, second only to the Pharaoh. And he was able to bring his family down and preserve them through time of famine. But over time, there was a new ruler in Egypt. And that new ruler did not look with favor upon the Israelites. So they became slaves in Egypt, and they suffered and in that slavery and in that suffering, Moses was born. And he was divinely delivered. And he grew up in the household of Pharaoh's daughter. But after 40 years, as he's going back to his people Israel to see what their lives were like, to examine for himself, he murdered an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite. And so he's a 40-year-old man, and he's having to flee for his life. To the wilderness. And a couple of weeks ago, Justin preached about him going to the wilderness and meeting his wife, Zipporah, and his father-in-law, Jethro. That was from Exodus 2.23. And now we get to the place that Moses was pastoring the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. So we're going to examine this passage under three key points. So the first point is the mission of God. The mission of God. What did God want to accomplish? And what did he want Moses to do? The second point is the name of God. The name of God. Who is God? What is his name? What does it mean? The third point is the equipping of God. The equipping of God. How did God equip and prepare Moses to accomplish the mission he was given? So it's the mission of God, the name of God, the equipping of God. Verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. He was pastoring the flock. He had a flock to tend. We're going to learn a little bit about Jethro. It says he's the priest of Midian. And the priest means he's a, a religious leader. It also means he's a ruler. He's an officer. He's a prince. He could have been very 
high up in the social order of the Midianites. He could have been at a lower level, but he's an important man who probably has much wealth and large flocks. And Moses' job as his son-in-law was to pastor that flock, to take care of the sheep, to bring the sheep to where food, shelter, and water was, a place where he could protect, uh, protect those sheep. And it's probably a large herd. So his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Midian, you might recall from Genesis 25, was the son of Abraham. So I said Isaac was Abraham's son, but after Sarah died, he took a wife named Keturah. And one of the children of Keturah was Midian. And it is out of Midian that this, this, uh, this group uh, formed, the Midianites. They occupied land that's now in, probably in northwest Saudi Arabia, southern Jordan, and Israel, a desert land. And we continue. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, literally the far side, the other side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This place is Sinai. And so some scholars think that Horeb describes the area and then Sinai describes the mountain. And sometimes they're used interchangeably, but they're essentially the same place. Horeb equals Sinai. It's in that desert area between those two little gulfs, the the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. And if you look at pictures of that land or if you get to fly over, it is a wilderness. It is a desert, a barren land. But what happens to Moses there? Verse 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not being consumed. So first, angel, it means messenger. And so here we need to read the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. We might have pictures of angels in our head, and we probably don't need to apply those to to this this particular encounter. This is a messenger of the Lord, and it appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and that bush wasn't consumed. Now, I don't know if you spent a lot of time in deserts. I have. Uh, My work used to call me to the the uh, salt desert in Utah. So it surrounds the Great Salt Lake, and it was a barren desert. Almost nothing grew there. And whatever grew there was some hardy desert plants. But I'd be out there in the middle of wintertime, and it would be freezing cold. And so what do you do when it's freezing cold and you're having to spend all day outside? You try to light a fire. But all we have are these desert bushes. And they're thin, they're brittle, and they're dry. And so we get some aviation gas, drain it out in a little cup, sprinkle it over this wood, and throw a match on it. And it would just burst into flames. And for a minute, it was really warm. I appreciated that minute a lot, I will tell you that. But then the fire just quickly burned down because the, the wood was thin, it was dry, it was small. It would still give off some residual heat. But you could see the big woof, big flame, rapidly dwindling, and after a couple more minutes, no flame just some very small embers. It's unusual to see that kind of thing burning and continue to burn without abating. And Moses, as a good shepherd and as a good son-in-law, spent a lot of time out in that wilderness with his sheep. He knows what's usual and what's not usual. And it's there that he encounters the angel of the Lord. So on a number of occasions in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appeared... It seemed to be the Lord himself. In those cases, the angel has attributes that belong to God and God alone. In addition, he's addressed as the Lord. So if that be the case, he's not a created being, but God himself who took on an angelic, a messenger form. Some have thought it to be God the Father, but this would more likely be an instance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth for a short time in human form, and we call that a theophany. Other times, however, the angel of the Lord is clearly distinguished from the Lord. On these occasions, the angel must be a created being rather than God himself. This is one of those times where the angel identifies himself as the Lord. You know, from verse 6, I am the God of your father. So Moses is approaching the burning bush. 
And you know as you approach something burning, if you, he spent a lot of time outdoors around campfires, I am sure. Fire is purifying, but it's also dangerous, and it must be approached carefully. Verse 3, so Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And then Moses replied, and he said, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, then God said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Remove your sandals. Sandals protected the feet from dirt, from uncleanness. I mean, remember the time when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The shoes, the sandals were removed, and then they went further, and they washed the feet of all uncleanness. So he's approaching holy ground, and the ground that wasn't holy should be removed and they're removed in his sandals. So why was this place holy? This is a place where Moses was content to lead herds of sheep, and herds of sheep leave behind what herds of sheep leave behind. That's not what you do to holy ground. There was, and you could see pictures of, of places that people speculate are Mount Sinai or the area of Horeb, and it doesn't look holy. Why was this place? ground holy. And I would tell you, the presence of God conveys this holy status to this site. Holy means set apart. God is holy. He's distinct. He's set apart from creation. Verse 6, and he said, God said, I'm the God of your father. We're going to hear this repeated a few times. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This is the God of your father. This is how God introduced himself to the patriarchs. You go back to Genesis 26 and 28 and 46. This is a way of saying that who God is and how God relates to Moses that's familiar to Moses. This Tyler description emphasizes Moses' membership in the covenant people. God is gracious to tell Moses who he is and that Moses belongs to his covenant people. Those promises that were made to Abraham are are being fulfilled, and Moses is included in that fulfillment. God was still the God of his ancestors. God made an eternal covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not abandoned at their death but they were kept eternally alive by God so that God could truly be their God forever. And Jesus said that in, Moses 20, in Matthew twenty two thirty two when he said, I am the God of the living, specifically referring to these patriarchs. And we go on, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their outcry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them, And now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. That's the mission of God. God is going to save his people, and he's going to do it through Moses. And this section, verses 7 through 10, calls our attention back to the end of Exodus chapter 2 where these words were spoken. Uh, Let me just read, uh, starting verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. The sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry for help 
because of their bondage, rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. This, this, what we've read so far is bookended by God remembering his people, by God noticing his people, by God responding to their cries, and God uh, beginning to work to save his people. And God sought out Moses, and he's calling Moses to be a part of accomplishing that task. Lucky Moses. Imagine you've been working for 40 years in the desert. You probably have no thought of going back to the place where people were trying to kill you, to go back to a people that you've been kind of detached from. I mean, the Israelites are his people, but Moses didn't grow up like a normal Israelite. He grew up in an Egyptian household. Then he murdered an Egyptian. He made a life for himself in the desert. And now he is called back. So this is the mission of God. God is going to save his people, and he's going to do it through a messenger. He's going to do it through Moses. So we get to point two, God's name. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? So here's his first objection. We'll be tracking four of these. And I want you to look at the question that he asked and then look at the answer that God gave him. So what's the question? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I mean, that's a legitimate question. That's probably a question most of us would ask if we were put in Moses' place. Who am I? Here's the answer. Verse 12. And God said, and he said, Assuredly, I will be with you. I shall be with you. Who am I? We don't even need to answer that question, do we? Because it's not about what Moses can do. It is not about his abilities. It is not him doing the work of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. God will be with Moses. What is to be done will be done by God. It might be done through Moses, in Moses. Moses might have a part. Moses might be what the people see, what Pharaoh sees. But God will be doing the work. And that's the most important thing because he's really answering Moses' burning question. Am I going to survive this thing? How is this thing really going to be accomplished? And God says, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When this is all over, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I read that and I was thinking, I would love to see a sign that was fulfilled before I went to Egypt. And I think Moses is, is probably thinking the same thing. But God is gracious that he is teaching Moses and, and what he is teaching Moses does not just pertain to getting him to go but it is building the faith of this man that God is going to be using. And he's telling him that you will come out of Egypt. You will come back to this place, and you will worship me with your people. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll, I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. He has a question. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? The other gods that they know, the gods that they know from the land of Egypt have names. They have characters. They have stories. They, they, they see these gods portrayed in idols and in paintings and in artwork. And Joseph, I'm sorry, Moses wants to know, what do I tell them if they say, ask me, what is his name? What's he really asking you know, back then, name carries more than it carries today. Name is how we label somebody, how, what we call them. In this time, he's at really asking, what is God like? What is your character? What's your reputation? Tell me about yourself. And one of the themes of the entirety of Exodus is that God is making his name great. And he's making his name great through his people. And he didn't choose a great and numerous and powerful people. He, chose, he set his love on a people of his choosing, a people who did not have 
strength, who were not occupying the land that they were to occupy. He was going to make his name great through the people of Israel. And we get to verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Does that clear it up for you? It says a lot. And it doesn't in some ways. Third century BC translators, people who were translating the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, translated it into a phrase that sounds something like, I am the one who is. I mean, compare that to the name of another God, like Allah. We can't name our God. We're not the reference point and can describe him in ways, fully describe him in ways that we can comprehend. God is our reference point. He describes us. He is God. He has created us. We are distinct from him. He has authority over all. I mean, how do I think of like even the people in this room? I am me. I am Bob. When I look at you, you know, maybe the first major category is you are not me. You are somebody else. And I, I know you are all people, and I can distinguish people from a microphone stand. And I think about that in reference to me. God is not like that. He is the great I am. He is ultimate. He is that sovereign authority. The world is created by him. He's gracious, and he reveals himself to us. And he gives us things that we can understand. And he gives us names. And he gives us his word. And he describes himself in his word. And it is all true. And we can trust it because that is part of the character of God who he demonstrates to us in his word and in this world. But he's the reference point. I am. There's a term called the tetragrammaton. It's four letters. We translate them as Y-H-V-H. Sometimes, sometimes we'll say Jehovah. Most people think it was probably pronounced Yahweh, Yahweh. That's what he's saying here. I am. I I'm not giving you more than that for my name. But he does uh, authorize Moses to add a little more information. Here's what he said. God furthermore said to Moses, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is the name for all generations to use to call me. We are not to give our God another name. We're not to describe him in ways that he does not describe himself. He is God. And his people may forget God, but God will not forget them. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he sent Moses to them, even in the midst of their suffering. So verse 16, go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I'm indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the oppression of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. There's that repetition of the God of your fathers. This is important to God. This is important to the people of Israel. God is remembering and keeping his covenant. Now, take a look at what God is asking Moses to do. And it just sounds, from a human perspective, like it doesn't make sense. Moses, I know you fled from there. People still might be wanting to kill you. Your people probably aren't willing to accept you, but you're going to go to go to them. You're going to gather them up, give them a short message describing what Moses has uh, just had in his encounter with God, and then they're going to pay attention to what you say. I mean, why? Why would they pay attention? Is that really going to happen? Verse 18, then they will pay attention to what you say, and you, with the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt. So all these Israelites are going to take their lives in their hand. They're going to believe Moses. They're going to act on that. 
And they will go with him to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, their God, has met with us. So now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The people were going to pay attention. They were going to pay heed. They were going to hearken to and understand and obey and diligently follow what Moses said. And this three days journey, that's a big deal. These are people enslaved in Egypt. And this request for a three days journey is in fact a request for religious freedom. It's a demand to worship in an area outside Egypt's control. They demanded freedom to worship their God. It establishes God's divine rights over his people, and it challenged Pharaoh's deity. Was this command less than totally frank? I mean, probably most of us know a little bit about what's about to happen, and it wasn't just the three days journey into the, to the wilderness, but God knew what was about to happen, and he says so in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I'll reach out with my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you'll put them on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. They're not sneaking out. God is going to do a great work, and they are going to depart, and they're going to depart with the property of the Egyptians. And God is making all of this possible, not because Moses is great, not because this people is great. It's because he is the great I am. He is the Lord. He is sovereign. His name is great, and he will make make his name great by delivering his people. So how does God equip Moses for this mission? And I I want you to listen to this especially because this passage is written so that we might have hope. And we're going to listen for some of the words and phrases that we see repeated in the New Testament. And we're going to see how God equips us for daunting and impossible work too. Let's start reading in chapter 4 verse 1. God's equipping. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Sounds like a a good question to ask. They may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What's that in your hand? And he said, A staff, a staff that shepherds carry. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it turned into a serpent. Now, that word serpent is the same word serpent used in Genesis chapter 3. And Moses sensibly fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, reach out with your hand and grasp it by its tail. Now, I've watched a few animal shows on TV. And I see these people dealing with snakes all the time and very venomous, dangerous snakes. I don't see any of these guys grasping snakes by their tail. I mean, where do you grab the snake, you know, right behind his head so it can't turn around and, and, uh, and bite you? God is asking Moses to exercise a little bit of faith. Reach out your hand, grasp it by its tail. So he reached out with his hand, he caught it, and it turned into a staff in his hand. Why? Verse 5. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. God graciously gives Moses a sign. And he's giving them this sign so that the people may believe. God is sending his message to his people who are in slavery, accompanied with sufficient signs so that they may believe. And this miracle also demonstrates the importance impotence of the Egyptian gods, the gods that the Egyptians would hold up to be opposed to the great I am, the God of the Hebrews. This first sign shows their lack of power. And we get to Moses' second objection in here. What if they won't believe? 
and this is just a huge problem for Moses. How do I even get moving? What if they won't believe? And so Moses is writing this many years later. He knows the end of the story. He knows how this is going to go. And he says, All I'm, I'm supposed to walk out of the wilderness. I'm supposed to gather elders, tell them about this encounter, and they're going to believe me, and we're going to go to Pharaoh, and we're going to say, let us go, starting with at least three days. That just shouldn't happen. And Moses is arguing with the angel of the Lord. He's arguing with God himself. This is, and it, just, it does seem like a huge, insurmountable problem, but I have to imagine that Moses is writing this, and he knows maybe even on the same page, on the same piece of papyrus, that he's going to go down. You know, I hold up in my Bible. This, this encounter is happening in, in Exodus chapter 4, and I just flip the page, and on the very next page, we read this. Chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. Then Moses and Aaron went. They assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. It happened just as God said it would. Moses is in the desert. He's arguing with God. He's asking for signs. He's questioning God. And God deals with it in the matter of three verses in the very next chapter. God was building Moses' faith in this. So what's Moses' sin here? He's not trusting God. It's a sin of unbelief. Israel has forgotten the promises of their God. Of Israel has forgotten the promises of its God. You think back in the Garden of Eden. Eve could have trusted in what the Lord said. She heard the word of the Lord. She heard his instructions and relayed through Adam. And she could have trusted in that. And yet she did not. She did not trust what she heard, what God said, and she sinned. Cain, the same way. Judas Iscariot heard the very words of Christ, did not trust in what those words were, did not believe in them. And he sinned. And his sin started with disbelief. And Moses is struggling with disbelief in the, in the wilderness. And God is being gracious to give him signs, to be patient with him. And so, verse 6, the Lord furthermore said to him, Now put your hand inside the fold of your robe. So he put his hand inside the fold of, fold of his robe. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous. It was diseased like snow. Then he said, Put your hand inside the fold of your robe again. So he put his hand inside the fold again. And when he took it out of the fold, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So... If they will not believe you nor pay attention to the evidence of the first sign, and sign is a phenomenon that conveys a message, they may believe the evidence of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs nor pay attention to what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will turn into blood on dry ground. Moses is given power to perform three miracles two of which he gets to try right there in the wilderness. But that's not enough for Moses. And it is a daunting, daunting task that God is putting before him. And that's when we get to objection number three. And he says, I am not eloquent. When I wrote this sermon out and I was just saying this word, the first time I, I pronounced it, I said, I am not element. And I thought that was classic. I am, I am not eloquent. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I think Moses knows what he's talking about. He has never been eloquent. That has not been his gift. Even when he was in the court of the Egyptians, when he's in the wilderness, he has not been an eloquent speaker. 
But he says, you have spoken to your servant, to your slave, to the one who is obligated to obey your commands. Moses is beginning to, to express his trust and his faith in Jesus. But he does add, I'm slow of speech. Literally, I'm heavy of speech, heavy of tongue. Verse 11, but the Lord said to him, who's made the human mouth? It comes back to who God is, what his character is, what God has done, and the fact that God is with Moses. Who has made the human mouth? Or who makes anyone unable to speak or deaf or able to see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go. And he graciously tells Moses again, and I myself will be with your mouth and instruct you in what you are to say. God will be with Moses. Moses isn't done. Objection number four. Just send a message by whoever you will. Send this message by whoever you will. Moses has heard God tell him several times, you are the one. But he said, please, Lord, now send a message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord, Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. And so many speculate that perhaps Aaron and Moses met regularly over the years. They were brothers. And perhaps Aaron knew how to, uh, how to find and where to find Moses. Perhaps God was leading Aaron there. We don't know. But God knows who Aaron is, and he tells Moses about him. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be overjoyed. So you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I myself will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will instruct you in what you are to do. God is going to be with them, and he's going to be with both of them. He shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. So in the same way that God is giving Moses the words to say, Moses is going to take those words and give them to Aaron, and Aaron is to speak those. God still promises, I'm going to be with your mouth too, Moses, but this is for you. I'm, I am going to be with Aaron. I'm giving you permission to speak through Aaron. And he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him, and you shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. And that's our passage. So how does this make a difference to us? How does the Bible instruct us to use this passage? How does the rest of the Bible make use of this passage? Are the same concepts, maybe even the same words used to describe commands to us? This passage teaches us about God redeeming. Literally, he's buying out of slavery a people for his own possession, a people whose very existence proclaims the glory of God. And in this account, the Holy Spirit instructs us, teaches us, so that we can have hope. So let's look at the three points again. God's mission, God's name, and God's equipping. God's mission. What's your mission? And there's several places we can go. I'm going to go to Matthew 28 to describe a portion of that mission. Verse 18. I think we even read this last week. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. God's people are among the nations. They don't know they belong to God. They need messengers to go to speak God's word to them. And you know what they're going to do? God's people will believe. So we're to go. Therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And what's the promise? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is our main mission. This is the Great Commission. I mean, we have other callings within that mission, many. But we are called to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father. And we're to do this for the glory of God, and God is going to go with us. And while we're doing that, what are some of our callings? How are we to be the people of God? Here's a few ideas. 
from Scripture. We are to be a church. We are God's people. We are the called out ones. We were slaves. He called us to him. He established us as his people, his church. We're to live that out. We're called by his name. We're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are called by his name. We belong to him. We are to be a nation of priests, meaning we are set apart for God to minister to God. We're called to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In the New Testament, there are 59 one another commands, commands that tell us how to act towards one another. We are his people. We are to to do what he tells us to do, to demonstrate the faith with which we have been given. We're Christ's ambassadors. We represent him to the world. And so what happens? I have a mission. My mission is to glorify God. My mission is to do what he tells me to do, and it's go and to make disciples and baptize them. And then while we're doing that, we're to live together. We are to be his church, his people, his priesthood, his ambassadors representing him to the word, to the world. And we, and I fail at that. And we get to the end. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, I know some of your stories, but my goodness, sometimes our marriages are hard. And they're hard because I'm the one sinning. And sometimes I'm in a in a position I just don't want to be in. I'm married and I don't want to be married anymore. I'm single and I don't want to be single anymore. I'm in a job that I dislike. In fact, I'm in a job that I hate. I have relationships, maybe even some relationships in the church, and they're hard and they're painful. And I'm suffering in those. And I get to the end. And, and you know, sometimes I'm talking to some of you and, and, you, and you might be at the end of your rope and you, you come to me, I'm a pastor, I'm a shepherd, and I listen, and I listen with you, and I share some, I try to love you, and I share some truth from God's word, but sometimes I get to the end, and, and we're just staring at each other in my office, and neither of us knows what to do next. But we're not relying on your ability, and we're not relying on my ability. What do we do in those moments? Some of you, I've been in those moments with you. We remember, God is with us. We're called to the mission of God. We're called to do great things for God. And we're called to, to endure hard things. But at the end of the day, we find we can't. And so we remember God is with us and we pray and we ask God to help us. And every single time, he does. I'm no longer afraid to be staring at somebody and have nothing left to give. I mean, I've been hurting myself, and I'm going to meet with somebody, and, and I'm just crushed, and there's nothing in myself to give you. And that used to scare me, and it doesn't any longer, because God is with me. God is with you. And when there's nothing else to do, I can remember that, and I can pray, and you can pray. And hopefully we'll learn to pray at the beginning. We, we will remember at the beginning, it's not about me. God is with us. God is with his people. We can accomplish what he has us to accomplish. What was Christ called? Remember, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Christ departed so that we could receive the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us. John 16, 7 says, but I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Later in John 16, Jesus says, the spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll guide, he'll speak, he'll disclose to you. We've been given a mission and God is with us to accomplish it. God has a people, his people. They're slaves to sin and they're gonna suffer and die in that sin until they hear the message. So we deliver a message, and God's people believe it. We hear God's mission for us. The church's mission together is our mission individually. So God tells us to go. He gives us a sign to authenticate that mission, 
And the most important sign being the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Other signs, the existence of the church, the word of God itself, the Holy Spirit is in us. And then we tell people God's message, and there's no earthly reason for them to believe it. But God's people do, just like the Israelites believed Moses and Aaron. So we're afraid to go because we feel ill-equipped, and we're right about that. We look ahead, we argue with God, we're fearful. We feel inadequate for the task, and we don't want to do it. And we are inadequate, but God is with us. God's name, we do it all in the name of the Lord. We baptize in the name of the Lord. We're priests. We minister to God. We're ambassadors. We represent God. He is the great I am, and he reveals himself to us. He's the almighty, El Shaddai. He's the most high, El Elyon. He's our savior. He's our healer, Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth. He's our righteousness, Jehovah. I can't even pronounce it. Think of the way God describes himself, altogether lovely, the blessed and only potentate, faithful, everlastingly kind, the forgiver of sins. Church, meditate on these things. We are God's people going in his name, baptizing in his name. God loves his people. He sent us a message to tell his people. What's that message? We were born in sin. We are sinners who love our sin. God sent his only son, because he loved the world so much. And that son, Jesus Christ, came to earth, lived as a man, died the death that my sin deserved, and then rose again, demonstrating a power over that sin. And we tell the world, you need to repent of unbelief and turn and trust and have faith in that message. And God's people do. And God equips us, not all at once, Moses wasn't prepared for all he went through. Exodus 12 describes the Passover. And that's, you know, that's like four or five pages in my Bible. The rest of Moses' life goes through the end of Deuteronomy. And he suffers. And he struggles. And he has impossible tasks. Moses isn't even thinking about those in the desert. He's thinking, how do I get through Exodus chapter 12? And God does it. Moses... If he knew what was coming after, he would be asking a lot more questions. But God is gracious. He equips him for the task at hand. He equips him for the task to follow when he needs that equipping. He will do the same for us. So Christians, rest in that labor. If you're not a Christian, the gospel is the truth you need. It's the word of God. Repent of sin and unbelief. Believe what God says and become his child. If you repent and if you trust in God, you are part of his people. And we would ask you to come tell us about that. Come talk to me or one of the other pastors or any CLC member. We want to hear your testimony. God loved the world and sent his son to die to redeem his people. So this sermon is a call for all believers in Christ, for all God's people to remember that God is with you. And God is with you. And you should and you can do God's mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you 